Hello, good morning. Here we are on another National Code Network Live. And today we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Patrick Willis. And so before we get right into learning a little bit more about Patrick, Pat has actually um, worked in LA County. He worked for the Long Beach uh, Fire Department Arson Unit. He was there for about 18 years in that assignment. And he actually came and hung out with us when uh, Pete and I used to be part of our state association once upon a time. He put together an amazing training that really focuses on uh, safety components, safety components when it comes to code enforcement, some of the tragedies that come, unfortunately, from doing arson investigation and responding to fire events. Um, but in addition to that, you know, this week is Building Safety um, Week, and it's Building Safety Month the whole entire month of May. And although we're talking about safety and sustainability in a lot of aspects, a lot of what Pat did in his tenure with Long Beach was just that, the safety component, right? How we keep people safe in their homes. So without further ado, thank you so much, Pat, for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Good to see you guys again. Yes, good to see you too. Good to see you too. So, Pat, you know, when I recall um, having you at our uh, annual conference, I will tell you that we couldn't find enough chairs to fill your uh, meeting space. I mean, we, we had people just wanting to hear your message, wanting to know what happened, wanting to hear your story, wanting to learn a little bit more about you. And so, um, I would want, I would like to, to maybe walk through that a little bit with you and, and see, you know, where we're at, what you've done since uh, that particular event. And I know you're going to share the story with us, um, what you're doing to enact change, to promote safety, to uh, cause a difference or, or, or create a movement, if you will, of safety in our world. So, Ceci, before we begin doing that, uh, Patrick, can you kind of just kind of guide us through how you became a firefighter? Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself because yeah. I'm so excited yeah. about this, Pat, as you can tell. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah. my uh, as I, I, I wrote the book, you can see the book over my shoulder here in the background. But uh, in in the in the late 60s, I used to hang out on the set of a show called Adam 12 in the city of Los Angeles, which was about the Los Angeles Police Department. My uncle happened to be the stage manager on that show. So my cousins and I would hang out there and we wanted to become uh, cops for LAPD. And uh, later on, my uncle got transferred to a show called Emergency. And uh, I spent just one day on that set and I had to call him up and say, you know what, I'm changing careers and uh, ended up becoming a fire explorer in the city of Huntington Beach. And then in 1975, I went through the academy and joined the fire department at that point. Ended up going to uh, Orange County Fire Department when it was the Orange County Fire Department. And then the uh, city of Glendale in Los Angeles County. And then in 1981, I transferred down to Long Beach where I was a firefighter, a paramedic. And then I made captain in 1990. Um, we actually just... Uh, had the anniversary of the LA riots. I was on the LA riots. That was my 30th, 35th birthday that night. And uh, my uh, my guys sang me happy birthday in front of an entire mini mall on fire in uh, central <laughs> Long Beach as it was burning. Wow. And it was just a uh, incredible time. So uh, 
around that same time, uh, a, probably the mid nineties, I started to get the law enforcement bug uh, back in my system. And there was an opening for the supervisor of the investigations unit, the arson unit. And I applied and was selected. And that was September of 1998. And I stayed there until I retired essentially in 2015. And uh, I had a great team. It wasn't just me uh, handling these investigations. I had a great team. We were part, we had a Long Beach police officer with us the whole time. We had a, uh, we had a special agent from the LA field office of the alcohol, tobacco and firearms. And uh, we did a lot of good work, put some bad guys in jail, but we also uh, did some investigations that really brought to light the, uh, the problems with unsafe housing um, one of them happened to be a large loss fire in North Long Beach, which was an apartment fire in December of 2006, with, which was just a pure code violation incident where the building code and the fire code had been ignored and a fire raced from the first floor to the third floor of this large apartment complex and it ended up killing two people. So um, that actually spurred the district attorney on to start looking at fire code cases a little different. And then uh, in, I believe it was 2011, uh, a Los Angeles firefighter was killed in the Hollywood Hills. And that was a fire code, or that was a building code case also. And the district attorney took that case very seriously and then ended up prosecuting the, uh, I believe it was the architect of that. Uh, he was the architect of the home who had been doing some of these renovations anyways. He was ended up convicted of uh, being responsible for the death of the firefighter whose name was Glenn Allen and uh, beloved firefighter on the Los Angeles Fire Department. So that was a really good thing. Um, and of course, uh, the tragedy of the Avila sisters and, and the safety of housing for all is uh, near and dear to my heart. So in December of 2007, a very tragic fire occurs near 10th and Martin Luther King in Long Beach. And uh, that claimed the lives of Jasmine, Stephanie and Jocelyn Avilas as they were sleeping inside of an illegally converted garage. And that's the presentation that I did in Palm Springs. And uh, I have to give a little shout out to my buddy, Jonathan Bell, who you might remember. Uh, he was the guy that was responsible for uh, getting uh, getting me into that uh, seminar and, and giving this this uh, presentation. Um, he also had wrote a paper that uh, apparently was in your code enforcement world. Uh, I had I didn't even know the, uh, who he was and happened to uh, reach out to him in an email that was in some article that he wrote. And eventually we, we became friends. And he was the guy that was responsible for getting me over to uh, the Palm Springs seminar. And uh, you're right, as I remember correctly, there were there was many code violations of the uh, occupancy uh, that that afternoon. But um, what, what a great uh, what a great time that I had. And it really I was very happy to know that there were so many people that were so positive on, you know, the uh, making sure that we have safe housing in not only California, but but in America, and uh, obviously that was li limited to California, but um, I also have to give a lot of credit to the city of Long Beach to, to then, uh, to, to, to the then city council, D Andrews, who was a city council person who 
co-authored the Long Beach Avila's Law, which as a result of the, uh, the Avila sisters dying in that fire, they took all of the garage laws that were existing at the time and they renamed all the laws after the kids called the Long Beach Avila's Laws. And uh, they then recommended that to go to the uh, Sacramento and the legislature uh, held, or, which was uh, Assemblywoman Bonnie Lowenthal. And now I think he's the uh, insurance, he's Ricardo Lara. He was our, our, our senator, uh, co-authored the Assembly Concurring Resolution 32, which encouraged all cities and counties in the state of California to name their garage laws uh, the Avila's laws. And that was in May, uh, which is the, this is building and safety month. So, um, all of that worked out. And then, um, you know, the, uh, the tragedy of the Avila's case, there's, there's, there's lots to it. And, uh, it was something that after, uh, this is the 15th anniversary of that fire, but it took me a while to realize that I had some issues with that. And, uh, I ended up writing a book and, uh, the book is uh, doing very well, but it's a story about the tragedy of unsafe housing in America, the tragedy of a family who is led to believe that their uh, home is safe. Nobody ever told them that it was unsafe. And uh, because three little kids were uh, cold one night, they had a little electric heater with them that uh, ended up causing their death. So um, if we can get some good out of this, uh, let's... Uh, Let's keep up the uh, conversation. You know, Pat, um, and and I know Pete, you have a lot to share, but I, I this is this is one of the conversations that is so impactful in a variety of different ways because you know a lot of what you said, Pat, as far as you know your work with uh, the fire department the change in careers because you saw the desire to help in another way um, to, to the extent of, you know, working different types of fires in response to acknowledging the safety components that came as a result of those fires um, or that, that resulted in those fires, if you will. Um, in addition to that, the, the traumatic response or the post-traumatic stress that is induced because of such events. You know, I I look at this particular story and there's so many complexities. And you know, Pat, you did a phenomenal job of presenting your story in, in uh, Palm Springs, but this is not where the story ends, as you know, Pat. And this is where I have much appreciation for the work that you're doing because you're highlighting the importance of hey, this is why we need safe housing so that we don't continue to have these calls, so that we don't continue to, you know, come up on a fire call where we have another Avila sisters that are in, you know, unpermitted housing in hazardous situations that perhaps are, are looking at the hazards that could impact their livelihood, that could take their life from them, right? So uh, it, it's multifaceted in that we look at why it's so important to have building codes, why it's so important to have permitting processes in place, why it's so important to have code enforcement departments, why it's so important to have fire prevention departments, 
and to have our engine companies also um, in the know of who to call, right? Because I got to tell you, when I was working for a particularly large, larger city, and and you know I was new to the city, the one thing that I would always get was, well, who's code enforcement? What do you guys do? I don't understand, right? And there was this severe disconnect in how we operated because we operated in silos. That even though um, some of our fire engines were coming across these things and they knew there was there was an issue, they were trying to get that information funnel through. And sometimes it took a little a little while, not because of any fault to them, but because of the disconnect. And so we started working on that. Let's here's our number here. Let's contact. Let's work together. If you come across anything um, that is weird, funky, or out of the norm, you know, give us a call, and we'll give you a call if we come across anything weird or funky or out of the norm. Um, but also really tapping into how we take care of ourselves post event, right? Post traumatic event. And um, for those of you that have not purchased Pat's book, I highly recommend it. I purchased it for myself. It speaks to my heart because it, it really details the everyday of what we do in, in the safety profession that we are in. And, and truly, it's a safety profession because we're keeping the constituents of the, of the municipalities that we serve safe, right? That's the ultimate goal. So, Pat, when you talked about and I know you and I kind of went back and forth a little bit on messages about uh, ADU laws and <clears throat> how those could possibly have the potential of opening up unsafe um, hazards, right? Um, we talked about how there's a lot of legislation out there. And, and while Pat and I understand, and, let's, and to clarify, while we understand the necessitation for housing and we understand the necessitation for legislation to, to uh, create more housing and, and um, open up housing opportunities, when you are in the field that Pat was in for as many years as he was in, responding to as many calls as he was responding to on code-related issues, Right, and we're in, in in the profession that we're in in code enforcement. We have severe concerns about some of the legislation because we want to make sure that the safety components don't fall by the wayside. Can you talk a little bit about that, Pat? I can. I just wanted to go right back. I just wanted to kind of circle back to something you talked about for uh, PTSD and and uh, personal care. Uh, my book is not just about firefighters going red lights and siren. Um, I have to say, and I, I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of teaching for investigation. But one of the things that I say is, uh, you'll always hear me say this, it's all about the code. Um, the code, unfortunately, is very boring. It's just this black and white letters that don't mean a lot to a lot of people. Um, firefighters love going red lights and siren. That's what we do. They love the action. The problem is, is that when you get this non-action type event, such as I see a hazard, now what do I do with it? You're right, Cecilia, there is a huge disconnect. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of municipalities don't give the resources that they should for code enforcement. They just completely ignore it. Um, and if they don't ignore it, they give it the minimum amount of effort. And that is it. So we can't just keep bringing in more people into our areas and not giving them the housing that, that is uh, relies on the code to keep them safe. Uh, the Avila's tragedy is 
that's just the classic example of what can happen when the code is ignored. There's no, there's no other greater incident. Obviously, the ghost ship is a great example of a uh, an event where the, not only was the code ignored, a lot of people in that city knew about that problem. But this is what I, you'll, you'll hear me say this when I teach also. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? A fire breaks out and 36 people die. That's never going to happen. And it did. Um, the other thing is, which is really sad, is the public's awareness of what actual danger really is. They don't understand that when, like in the case of the ghost ship, well, this is a, a stairway made out of pallets. I guess it's okay. If my friend doesn't mind, I, I think I'll walk up the stairs with him and go back into this building where I have no idea to be. But since they're not afraid, I'm, I can't be afraid either. So what's going to happen? A, a fire breaks out and 35, 36 people die? Yeah. And, and that's the problem. So um, the, the code has to mean something. Um, the municipalities and the cities have to give those agencies the tools. And that includes the enforcement action to keep people safe in their city. You know what? Just, there's nothing, no way around it. Right. You know what, Patrick, you, you did uh, state the, uh, it's true. You know, my first call ever on code enforcement was an actual garage conversion that caught fire and two people died. That was my first day that they let me loose on my own. Uh, I was on a job for about a month, two weeks of studying the code inside the office, learning the office, and then two weeks of following another code inspector around. And that was my essential training, you know? So, so when it came to garage conversion, I don't know what to look for. And that's a norm across the country because you know what? I didn't know about egress. I didn't know about people uh, sealing their doors. I didn't know the dangers of carbon monoxide with the, with the water heater. And, you know, I certainly didn't know the potential dangers of plugging in an electric heater. Um, I did grow up in Long Beach during that time. Uh, the Vila Sister, it was a big topic of discussions in many homes, especially many Hispanic homes, because, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, reality is, in, you know, in the lower income Hispanic community, you have people living, uh, you know, in garage conversions. You know, I've, you know, I've seen it myself. Um, I've experienced it. Um, I lived in uh, places where, uh, you know, we, we crammed a bunch of people in a, in a, in a space and it became hazardous. And, and, you know, being a new code enforcement officer, you really don't get those skills. I mean, people don't teach you, hey, there's an occupancy limit. There's a, you know, uh, if a stairway was made out of pallets, it, it may be an issue for missing handrails. People don't realize these are potential dangers, like you said. And, you know, when we talk about informal housing and all this, uh, you know, all this uh, new legislature, uh, you know, with junior ADUs where you can convert your garage into a living quarters now, I mean, it has to be done safely and by the code, like you said, because there's so many potential dangers of like escape uh, accessibility routes and stuff like that. So I, I really appreciate that you bring that to the forefront. You, uh, you know, and I remember when you, when uh, uh, Jonathan did, you know, kind of lobby for you to get on there. It was an important conversation. I remember that conversation. It was all over the newspaper. Uh, people were taking up collections. Uh, Tender Martin Luther King wasn't that far from where I hung out and went to school. Uh, but in my neighborhood, that's what we experienced because, you know, we had people living in garages all up and down the street, you know, so I, I appreciate that. Well, and I, I want to say I have to give credit to the to the code enforcement officers of the city of Long Beach. Um, 
before and after the fire involving the Avila sisters, they always came out and did a great job of, you know, citing the code. They did due diligence. The, the one thing I will say, and, and, and Cecilia probably hit on this was, and, and this is what I wrote about in my book. This was not just about the firefighters and the paramedics that were there that night. It, it's about the first 911 dispatchers that received that call but it's also about the code enforcement officers that were there and worked that case diligently. And they saw that thing through to the very end. And that just, ex it, it extends throughout the code enforcement people from all over the country. They, they may, it's, they may never go on a fatal fire involving a code issue, but they will see things that will touch their hearts and, you know, there's a lot of sadness to what they see each and every day. So they are the code enforcement people are just as big a part of the first responders as the men and women that put on that uniform and get to roll code three through the city. Uh, they are all in on the same team. I, I cannot emphasize that enough. And I thank you for that, Pat, because, you know, um, I got to tell you that you know, just just as that impact, and and this is this this is the other part that we don't really talk about. Um, I actually have the great opportunity to talk about mental health with a code officer. I do a training for the International Code Council. When you get started with code enforcement, no one hands you a book on. Hey, you know this this is a mental health component that you also have to tackle. You know, th these are the resources that you may have should you see something traumatic out in the field. Nobody prepares you for that, right? Usually it's, hey, you're going to go hit the, the ground running. You're going to go learn the code. You're going to do the things. You're going to send that notice of violation. You're going to do the posting, et cetera. But nobody really talks about how we deal with the post-traumatic component of it. And here's the thing. Um, when, when you are the code enforcement officer responding to that, tragedy right and this was your case and the first thing that you see come across your screen whether it's on your phone as an alert or whether it's on on a news uh station and they say you know this is this is what's happened at this property your heart sinks i mean you're just looking at it like oh my gosh that was my case or oh my gosh something happened right it's it's one of those things that really impacts you because you're trying to do the best that you can. And you're so right, Pat. There's so, there's so much scarcity when it comes to resources for code officers, um, for even having the opportunity to speak on, hey, that's that's a great legislative bill that you're passing through, but let's let's mm -hmm. look at it from this angle, right? Let's unpack that a little bit. Um, for example, SB. One three, I think it was, and six six eight. When we were talking about stay of enforcement orders, right? Stay of enforcement for five years from permitting. If you meet minimum safety standards, then you're okay to have a converted ADU. We get the component, or we get the idea of having housing available, but also, you know, we can't guarantee that something that was built without permits was built to par, right? Even well, for the five-year window, it doesn't make any sense. It should be maybe 90 days. Um, the people that that the people that are that are putting that into operation, they they have no idea what they're talking about if they don't go out and see the garage that the Avila sisters were in, or all of the same accessory dwelling units that are being converted 
throughout throughout the entire state of California and beyond. It's, you know, come on, give me a break. Yeah, it definitely puts building departments in a pickle because I know that, for example, if even if you showed up and inspected something and you said, you know what, it's lacking heat, a permanent re, uh, source of heat, we can't we can't legalize a heating source on an unpermitted structure. It still needs to go through the process, right? So it kind of puts you in that, you know, uh, between the rock and the hard spot, if you will. But even looking at it at a grander scale, you know, responding to unpermitted construction. I know for me, I have a, a personal personal experience that stuck with me, just like you, Pat, um, that took me a very long time to kind of process. And that was, you know, with a multifamily who had um, built attached storage uh, units and um, trying to get those called out and get those uh, corrected while that was all happening. And a lot of political pull was involved with this one as in many of our cases. Um, so there was some delay there because of the political component. My um, friend who's a lieutenant in the same, or who was a lieutenant there and in that jurisdiction comes to me and he says, Cece, I have some really bad news for you. And he tells me, you know, we had a, we had a three-year-old who was assaulted in one of these storage units. And Pat, as a mom, as a code officer, I'll tell you that that really, it breaks your heart. It really shatters your soul at the moment when you hear it because you think to yourself, oh my gosh, this is something, this is why we exist. And you feel a little bit of, of heaviness, you know, come over you because you start thinking back to that PTSD component. You start thinking, what could I have done better? What resources were out there to assist me? How could, have, how could I have stated my case a little louder so that I was heard? And this is why I appreciate all that you do, Pat, because you you are very front and center with it. You're, you're very much, hey, listen, we got to do some things here. We got to change this around. We need to support our code people. We need to support our fire people. We need to support our first responders. We need to make sure that when we're enacting legislation that we're really looking at it full circle. And every time you're talking, Pat, I have like this little tree, right? Of just kind of, you know, going different places, safety, laws, code officers, building, ghost ship, Long Beach, how all of those play into what we do every single day to keep the constituents of our city safe. It's so let me, let, let me put my supervisor slash I'm 65 and I don't care who I'm talking to hat on right now. <laughs> So I'm going to talk to all the supervisors out there that are listening and all the maybe upper management. Um, your code enforcement people deserve all of the same mental health benefits that firefighters and police do. Uh, don't think for one second that they're not seeing exactly the same things. And uh, that also includes legislation to help them uh, in their uh, mental health issues, too. So there we go. But um, you know what? It's a big process. It's also a big country. And we made a lot of progress here in California. I think, I think some of the progress is starting is going a little backwards because of the ADUs and some of these uh, shotgun uh, solutions. But uh, let's move forward and just get the awareness out there again. Um, and keep it out there so that uh, we can prevent the, and the Avila's tragedy is only one tragedy. That's only one little blip on the radar when you look at how big this country is. Uh, as sad as it is, it's not the only one that's happened. So 
um, yes. we have to keep we have to keep going. Absolutely. And so and to 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 uh, continue to build on that. So we have codes. We have lots of codes, lots of codes out there that if we tap into the resources are there. How we tap into them is super fundamental and essential. Um, I know that um, following ghost ship, that kind of became a staple nationally for many code departments on what not to do and what to do, how to approach, how to set up your programs. And still to this day, to this day, and we are what, I think seven years post ghost ship almost, we are still finding code departments that are still kind of struggling in putting together a robust program. But what's true is this, it became a staple of the things that could happen if we don't have something in place that's gonna allow the code officers, you know, the boots on the ground, the ability to go out and enforce in such a way that they're working collaboratively with other departments. In addition to that, we did have some municipalities, the city of Santa Ana being one of them, they took a proactive approach. They were out there, they were inspecting all, all their warehouses in, you know, in their backyard, trying to make sure that things were tip top. I know that uh, in the East Bay, there were other municipalities there that were like, oh my gosh, this really rattled our cage. We better stay on top of it. But it doesn't end there. Um, there's, there's a term that's used when it comes to um, hoarding and cleanups. And it's that um, it's that um, that fear of loss of something that triggers a quick cleanup, right? It's it's a response for a quick cleanup, and that's kind of what happens in the code world. When we have something that happens so tragically like that, then we start responding with a quick response, right? We're going to do a quick cleanup, a, a quick dive of let's take that proactive approach. But Pat, I'm with you in that that proactive approach doesn't just stop there. It continues on. It continues on with everything that we're doing. Let's get them on a two-year inspection rotation or a one-year inspection rotation, whatever it takes, right, to make sure that we're staying on top of it. But with that, we de definitely understand. Pete and I work with code nationally, and we know firsthand how hard it is to staff these departments because they've been forever and a day kind of the, the background folks, right, that didn't really have a lot of the people, boots on the grounds responding. And we really need to start bolstering up those code programs because that's that's your bread and butter of a, of a municipality in the sense that they're the ones that are eyes on, eyes on everything that's going on in your municipality and making sure that things are staying the safest as possible. Um, which brings me to the topic of uh, proactive rental inspection programs. What's your thought on that, Pat? Um, say that again? Proactive rental inspection programs. If 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 it's a if it's a rental property that falls under the code, I say it should have be inspected every year, just like everything else. Annual inspections. Right, right, exactly. And I think there's a lot of benefit to those too because um, proactive rental inspection programs, and and Pete, you can dive into this too. Um, it's almost one of those that'll allow us on a proactive approach minimize the fear to tenants right because there's a lot of tenants out there that feel fear of coming to code compliance or complaining and fear of retaliation maybe they're undocumented maybe they they don't have any other housing so they have this fear of if i say something's wrong someone's going to retaliate i might lose my housing whereas proactive rental kind of comes in as a city approach basically saying we're going to come in because we want to make sure things are safe we want to make sure that we let you know that you need to go through permitting processes to get things done in a certain way so that we're not faced with crisis 
intervention or, or crisis responses, right? We're, we're, we're looking at it in a proactive approach. Um, in addition to that, moving forward with some of the things that you're working on, Pat, what other things do you suggest would be helpful as far as looking at the safety component of code compliance as it interacts with fire department? Well, first of all, I think it, I think it has to be taken seriously. Um, it, once again, the code is boring. There's nothing more boring than the code. You can put people to sleep with it. <laughs> but the Coconut Grove fire in Boston, Massachusetts, 494 people were killed and it ended up changing the fire code and the building code back in the 40s. I think that's when that fire happened. Um, it, it just has to be taken seriously. And if the enforcement against the property owners is that they get charged with a crime or they get fined, well, that's that's their problem. That's not it's not the city's problem. It's if you're going to if you're going to adopt those codes, which all the cities do, they adopt those codes then take the adoption seriously and enforce the code. You know what, Patrick? Yeah, I look at it. Yeah, I've been in jurisdictions where, you know, where people shy away from enforcing the code, even though it's written, uh, you know, with garage conversions. We had, you know, I served in a city where when we started going after garage conversions, we, you know, it, it happens like a domino sometimes where, you know, you enforce, they're like, hey, what about this guy and that guy? So you go and to talk to them and you know enforcing that code where what about that guy and that it becomes a domino effect where you have enough people complaining to council where sometimes council's like well you know let's create an amnesty program for this group and you're bypassing a lot of these these things but at the end of the day we're like hey it's in the building code you know you just can't change the building code you can change the way we enforce but you can't really you know bypass these like minimal requirements for health and safety you know absolutely um, so, you know, and, and I think a lot of jurisdictions kind of miss the boat there sometimes because, you know what, uh, I, I've seen jurisdictions where you're like, hey, we don't touch uh, housing stuff. That's not our job. That's the health department or this the fire department. And at the end of the day, we're like, hey, we're the people that we see these things. We have to, you know, I, I'm big on if you see something, say something. So I'm big on, a, hey, if you notice something dangerous, you need to enforce it, whether you know, whether you want to or not, because I've been places where, you know, people say, what's the big deal? We're missing a couple of $5, you know, smoke detectors. I'm like, yeah, well, that $5 can save your life, you know, or, you know, Easily. You, you know, you see these, uh, you see these and then landlords are like, well, it's going to cost me so-and-so. Or sometimes like Cecilia said, some of the tenants are scared to say something because, oh, what if they raise my rent? I have great rent and they're going to raise my rent. Or sometimes, you know, you do go to these locations and, you know, you, you do a walkthrough with the tenant and, you know, me, you know, when you get that eye look from the, from your parents, you're like, is anything wrong? You're like, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, you do that, get that with the, with the residents sometimes and, and the landlords there, they're afraid to say something because, you know, they don't want to get the landlord in trouble or get evicted or stuff like that. So, you know, it, it's important for, code enforcement to realize this and it, it comes with training you know um I, i'm a big advocate of promoting the fire inspection training i mean but we need kind of cross train with code enforcement on some of these issues well the fire departments need to understand that is here's what i think is a big issue is that they don't a lot of people don't understand where the building code and the fire code there's a there's a line 
where does the fire code begin when the building code ends and so on and so forth. Um, once again, I think it's still support through the municipalities or the agencies that if you're going to if you're going to adopt these laws and you're going to adopt the code, then get the, get a, amount, the amount of people in there that you need to go out and, and enforce the action and and find out what your priorities are. You know, is it accessory dwelling units? Is it illegal conversions? What, what would be the top priorities? Um, Long Beach, to their credit, they were just outstanding in that type of operation. And I think Long Beach realized well before, probably 10 years before the uh, Avilas case, that there was a problem with the uh, illegal conversions in the garage. And they, they created some pretty good laws against the owners uh, that, uh, that worked out very well in the city. And I hope that other agencies would do the same. But as political issues pop up and, you know, once again, if 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 those laws are there for life safety, then they have to be enforced. You know, the other the other avenue for education, and I fully agree with what you just said, Pat, the other avenue for education is going out into the communities. Um, <clears throat> I can't speak enough on community engagement and the value of that. Um, really going out there, being a part of the community, um, building and earning that trust, right, goes a long way because after that, you you find yourself doing a little bit of education. Education is key. Letting them know this is why we're here. This is why we're code. Um, I've had landlords tell tenants, don't talk to her. She's ice, right? And I'm like, no, I'm not ice. You know, that's not my role. I'm an inspector. And rather than push the angle with the tenant and make them feel uncomfortable, I just handed them my card and said, here you go. When you have a minute, call me. We can talk on the phone. Sometimes that's what needs to get done too. So you don't have that uncomfortable, uh, fearful conversation with the tenant there. Because like Pete said, they'll be fearful to tell you if anything's wrong when the landlord's standing right there next to them or the property manager, right? Who then reports back to the property owner. So they're, they're, there's a lot going on at an inspection. But really getting out into the communities and having those conversations with the tenants, letting them know this is why we exist. This is why the fire department's there, but also this is why code enforcement's there. And in addition, also having those town halls with just the property owners, right? This is your this is your investment property. I can't tell you enough when I was in the city of Oakland for a little while, how many conversations to that effect I had with property owners. This is your investment property right? This is a property that you have in which you're, you know, providing housing, you have a, uh, a liability component if you don't provide healthy, safe housing. In addition to that, you have a responsibility to your owners, you have a responsibility to the community, because if something should happen, right, the whole community is impacted. The, the tenants, the, the neighbors, uh, the other properties surrounding. I mean, there's there's a lot. It's multifaceted. So really kind of engaging, going out there, getting them um, the awareness that they need, letting them know, like Pete said, and you said, you know, the safety components that come even from a carbon monoxide uh, detector, from a smoke detector, right? Why it's so important to have those there, why we need those happening, right? Um, there's so many um, variables that play into that. That really, um, I think, goes back to a full circle type education component. 
Let's hit up the communities. Let's hit up the young kids at the school. Let's hit up the property managers, property owners, you know, everybody. So that you might want to include the insurance companies in that. The insurance companies. I will tell you, Pat, that I actually had a case in one of my municipalities where the the insurance company paid out eighty thousand dollars per occupant. Eighty thousand dollars per occupant. Why? Because a lot of these properties that are rental properties are still insured. They have to be, right? For purposes of things such as, you know, fires and incidents that happen, $80,000 per occupant. And you know why? Because they were in violation with municipal codes. And they failed to take care of those, those issues that then exacerbated the health of the occupants. So they had to pay out. So yes, exactly. Insurance companies, get them involved, get everybody involved. And in addition to that, continue that. Maybe have that, you know, two times a year. Maybe have an ice cream social. Maybe have a, a neighborhood cleanup, you know, uh, three or four times a year. Work with your uh, waste management departments or your trash companies or your electrical companies. Whatever you have, whatever resource that you have, pull them in so that you can start doing those things. The other thing, too, is um, your city council. Right. Um, a lot of the times when I've heard back from city council, as far as feedback is, we always hear about what you don't have, but we never hear about the good things that you're doing. So even changing the narrative, even even changing that information with them and saying, hey, these are all the great things that we were able to do. And guess what? We could do more great things if we had all these added resources. So, you know what? What one thing, Cecilia, is that you know you you Pat, I give you all the credit in the world for uh, bringing this into kind of the forefront. Just talking about the Avila sisters and you know the the name change that that's a big component. You know, even changing in uh, you know uh, statewide. Now, yeah, you know, I know you're working on some some uh, like a national uh, recognition. So, can you talk a little bit about th that particular uh, uh, project you're working on? Sure, I have. Uh for a couple of years now been working to try to get what is called a, uh, the pre a presidential proclamation to designate every December 14th as national safe housing day. Now, December 14th is the anniversary of the death of the Avila sisters, but it's not just for those girls. It's a recognition of the event and the widespread problem with unsafe housing in America. So beginning in Orange County about three and a half years ago, I worked with a congressman to uh, get that proclamation uh, over to the White House. And it actually got into the White House. And unfortunately, that, uh, that congressman was defeated. So we started again. My wife and I went to uh, Washington, D.C. We met with Congressman Ken Calvert, who's a wonderful person. I met with his staff out in the uh, San Bernardino, he's from San Bernardino Riverside area, which has a lot of issues out there in the uh, in, Inland Empire. Met with his staff, gave them the, uh, the, the letters of support and stuff. And he also had uh, uh, got that proclamation into the White House where they had been looking at it. And uh, President Trump, my feeling on President Trump was he was a builder, so he would understand the code. Uh, he would understand all of that. Um, whether it be President Trump or President Biden, they are their fathers, their leaders, and they understand the of the human toll of you know these type of tragedies. So 
President Biden is now the president. Um, as far as I'm concerned, this is a nonpartisan issue. It is it is for the good of everyone. So therefore, it doesn't matter who the president is to designate every December 14th as National Safe Housing Day that we that we look back and we say to ourselves, how how can we make housing in America safer, uh, whether it be from a $20 smoke detector, proper exiting, um, permitted elite, permitted garage conversions. It doesn't matter, but we have to keep that effort going. But for the uh, for the president of the United States to sign that proclamation, I think would go a long ways. It's and here's the other thing is this is a no cost item. All of the laws are already there. It's the recognition of the laws, the enforcement and the problem with the unsafe housing in America. We have a lot of unsafe housing. That's just all there is to it. And uh, if we can just get some national recognition because the president does, he does make a difference and uh, the Congress people. So uh, I think that um, obviously with your help, uh, I think we could probably uh, get this thing moving uh, forward on a national level, especially with the code enforcement people and uh, see what we could do about getting uh, December 14th of every year designated as National Safe Housing Day. So, yeah, uh, what, Patrick, what can we do as a, or, you know, as a, as an industry code enforcement? What can we do? Um, we, we normally average about two to 500 viewers at a given time. So what can we do as a, as an industry? What, what would you suggest? Do we send in letters of uh, support? I mean, do more outreach to our general public just to bring more awareness. What is something that you suggest that we can do to help you uh, do this? Well, I think to make it easier, I will send you to a, uh, a packet on what we had proposed with the, with the former president and the legislators and start moving toward December 14th, which is so, so this December 14th would be a historical day because it's the 15th anniversary of this tragedy in Long Beach, California, in Los Angeles County. So it does have significance that, you know, 15 years later, and this is the best part of it, we did not forget about what the circumstances were. So we're going to continue to move forward to keep the children of this, the United States safe and, and, and the people that occupy these, these locations. We want to reduce them as best possible, but the awareness we're never going to reduce them and we're never going to get rid of them. That's the bottom line, but just more education and, and awareness on a national level would be greater. Um, I think the code enforcement organization is a phenomenal organization and they do have political pull. And once again, the best part about this is it's a no cost item because those laws and those ordinances are already there. So, I'll uh, make sure to get that uh, that those documents to you. Um, I had also uh, just recently spoke at the 100th anniversary of the California State Firefighters Association. Um, they were very enthusiastic about supporting this. So we'll see where we can go with this. And, uh, you know, we're not going to stop. How's that? That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. And I know I can speak for, for Pete and I and for many of our, our, our code family nationwide, we would be more than happy to help in any way that we can. Um, I think this is, you know, one 
very fundamental piece and and the work that we do every day collaboratively so we are excited for this pat thank you so much for uh including us and letting us know of it well absolutely there's there's no way that any of this could go forward without the code enforcement people and i'm not sure how many people are listening from across the united states but i know that the same problem exists in their jurisdiction and that that includes even in the wealthy areas because people just don't pay attention to the code they just don't so right so and now patrick and now let's let's you know when it comes to your book where can where can one find your book and what's the uh you know, uh, can you tell us a little bit more or we can? Uh... Sure. Um, this is my book right here. It is the reality of PTSD when children die. Um, that's me on the cover. Uh, you'll notice that I have a fire helmet on. Um, if you look closely, you can see my gun belt uh, at the on my waist. Uh, I was a California peace officer, just like the code enforcement officers. And I kind of wore two hats. I wore a law enforcement hat and I wore the fire hat. Um, this book is, is about the tragedy of December 14th of 2007 in Long Beach, California. And it's my reaction to the death of these children. It's also a reaction to some of the firefighters that are and the paramedics that are, uh, portrayed in this book and their real names are in the book about what their reaction to the tragedy was also. Um, I tried to put the reader into the i tried to put them into the house the night of the incident to understand what the survivor of the fire went through in terms of where she lived and her dilemma of trying to save these children i also put you in the front seat of the fire engine when they're rolling to that uh fire and the tragedy just does not get any better as the dispatchers just keep continually updating as they're en route. And it just seems to get worse and worse. Um, I also try to put you in the, in the shoes of the nurses and the doctors uh, who had to treat these kids. And then of course, in the investigation, the code enforcement people that were there also that so eloquently documented all of the, uh, all of those uh, violations that we found that morning. So there's there's also another story within this story. It's the hidden story of a young girl named Blanca who was not there at the fire that night. She uh, was 18 years old and she had actually been diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, um, which is a deadly childhood disease. And she'd been sent home to uh, essentially die. She was going to, she'd been taken off the lung transplant list. And what really bothered me about this young girl was that she was going to spend the rest of her days uh, before she passed away in this horrible little converted garage. Now, keep in mind that's somebody's home. So they made it into their home. There's no question that they tried to do their best to make it into their home. But to know that this young girl was going to stay in this place for the for the last days of her life was it was a tragedy within a tragedy so uh, i didn't forget her in this book either um but 
the book has done well. It's on uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, I do I get some nice comments on on the story, but it, it's it's a personal story. It's raw. It's it's very sad. Um, there is kind of a there there is a little relief in this book from this little dog named Atticus, who uh, I don't know if you read the whole book yet, Cecilia, but Atticus was a little dog that lived next door, and he's a care dog. Uh, he was my little buddy that kind of helped me with uh, with coping with this tragedy. And so pets do make a difference. So he has a whole chapter named after him. So, um, but uh, back to what we first started with, to me, it's all about the code. The code meant something very, it, it, it means a lot to this story. Um, if you're not gonna enforce the code, you should expect tragedies like this to continue. Uh, they certainly have continued. Uh, the ghost shift is a classic example of it. The station fire in Rhode Island is a classic example of it. And, uh, it goes far and wide. So um, I say let's keep uh, keep up the good work and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see everybody in Washington, D.C., maybe in December. That's right. And, you know, um, going back to the chapter on Atticus, we actually... Um, uh, got a new puppy dog not not too long ago, uh, Pat, and and that is exactly what I was telling my husband. I said, you know, I love that name Atticus. Can we just name him Atticus? You know, <laughs> yes. And so it, it's uh, it's such a great book. Again, if you have not purchased, please purchase it. It's a great book. It's it's a great story. Um, it's a great reminder. Um, it's a great eye opener. And you know what, Pat, not only are we in Building Safety Month this month of May, but this month of May also marks the start of Mental Health Awareness Month. So the entire month we're talking about, you know, all of those uh, mental health uh, components that play a vital role in our lives to include PTSD. Um, so, you know, it's, it was such a pleasure having you on to tap into basically a full tilt of everything that we do. And to hear about the great things that you're doing as far as proclamations and, and trying to enact change. And I know that I heard from some colleagues when you spoke last week, and they were very much in awe of you. They were very excited to hear you and, and to, to know the story that you shared. And so you're making a world of difference, sir. And for that, I I'm, I'm commend you for it. And we are very excited that you were able to make it to our show this morning. Well, I do appreciate uh, your kind comments. The one thing I have to emphasize is uh, that I didn't do any of this alone. Uh, the city of Long Beach were phenomenal in all of this. Uh, the state legislature in California, they played their part also. And then uh, obviously my brothers and sisters from Long Beach Fire Department, the police department and, and code enforcement, building and planning, uh, they were all there too. And lastly, my wife, Susan, was on this journey with me also. Well, there you have it. Big kudos to the entire Long Beach family of building safety, first responders all the way through and through, and the missus. And I have to, and once again, Jonathan Bell kind of opened up some doors for me that I never realized were open. And that's basically how I came about to speak in Palm Springs. And I hope to speak again for your organization. Awesome. Yeah, we do have a lot of contacts, so we'll we'll put you in contact with some of these other organizations. And 
you know, I, I want to say again, thank you, um, you know, for being on the fire side and having appreciation for what we do as code enforcement officials. Uh, that acknowledgement from a first responder, it's always welcome. Thank you to acknowledging that we're one big family in any jurisdiction. Uh, you know, when we work together, we, we can move mountains. So I, I really appreciate you for that. And I appreciate the fire, you know, fire services for what they do as well. So thank you. And, you know, everybody, thank you for tuning in today. And thank you to our guest, uh, Patrick Willis. Uh, you know, if, uh, I left the link on the, uh, on the uh, chat. So if you check out his book. It's a good one. So um, with that, I say thank you, and we will see you again next week. All right. Thanks, folks. See you <laughs> later. Bye. All right.